What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by you guys at Patreon. Thank you very much for helping to support our programming. We're also brought to you by Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. That's Scott's book at BYOBBcoach.com, or you can go to Amazon to get the hardcover. We're brought to you by Strom Sports Nutrition for those of you in the UK. We are brought to you by SupplementSource.ca for those of you in Canada. Great deals that change week to week. And most importantly, our title sponsor is TrueNutrition.com. Use our code think to get some additional savings check out their new website it's looking pretty solid and look forward to a bunch of contests and stuff coming up here in the near future scott stevenson we have we have a fun topic today we'll probably have a bunch of stuff you guys are welcome in the live stream to throw in some questions but we had gotten into a conversation on it's just bodybuilding about uh cardio and and we play this game overrated underrated and mm -hmm. is actual like signified I'm getting on the treadmill I'm doing my cardio is it overrated I said it's underrated right. personally and the reason I feel mm -hmm. that way is because I remember when I got involved with bodybuilding everybody was doing a lot of cardio and it was mandatory and nowadays right. uh, everybody counts steps and a lot of people are like hey you don't really even need to get on a treadmill I, mean, I do 10,000 steps a day that's plenty and and I found <laughs> though that that isn't exactly the same. Does it work? Absolutely. I used to I used to walk my dog for cardio and it worked for a lot of my contest prep, but there were times that I still needed to get in the gym, get on a treadmill, get my heart rate up, elevated and consistent. Scott Stevenson is cardio overrated. <laughs> exactly. It's all contextual. Right. The first thing, historically, it's so interesting what you said, because that's that happens with pretty much you name it. We might might talk about intro workouts a bit today. And I'm doing actually on um, for any German listeners who are there. Um, I'm about to switch to German. But I'm, I'm going to do a, a, a webinar on Thursday, which is Thanksgiving. Actually, I didn't realize it when we set it up but oh. early in the morning or in the day for me um, on intro workouts. Oh, um, yeah. And yes, training. And um that one is come it, like it was like that came out of nowhere. Milos was doing it, Harleen was doing it, and then everyone was doing intra workouts, and we have tons of intra workouts, and now it's kind of like, eh, you know, do it, don't do it. So things come in and out of fashion, and yeah. that's happened with meat. I mean, I remember um, Jordan was one of the people we, we made we paid very special attention to Jordan Peters, staff. Jordan Peters exactly, and he talks about that, and I talk about it in my book, and now. Like you said, it's like, well, that's kind of a substitute. So what happens, I think, just with so many things in bodybuilding, if you have success about something, you rant and rave about it. You tell everyone this is an alternative that I wasn't aware of beforehand. Yeah. You know, I can just go out and walk the mall or do fun things. And I and that for me is a substitute for my cardio. That's not a representative average sample of what works for everyone in every situation. You don't hear about like, okay, I tried that it didn't work. Like like, let's just tell you how I failed. I'm going to post everywhere on social media. This didn't That's work. That's true. For me. That's true. Unless you're ranting about it, right? Unless you unless you have a major complaint. Um, but if it comes across as like, you know, I, I made a mistake, you know, or I you know I didn't I did something that that, that didn't work out for me, and I kind of feel like you wasted your time, which really it isn't. We don't like to brag about, so to speak, our failures. Yeah. So. I think it's totally contextual. Calories are calories. You need to have a caloric deficit if you're going to drop body fat. So that's something that's there. 
And then there's at least like two factors, I think, that we're going to probably differentiate whether someone does better with chest meat, with more steps, basically just more energy expenditure with the lowest intensity possible, which is going to basically be walking. Um, I mentioned before we're talking about there's a uh, actually a research article that came out about the soleus push-up um, where people are, are bouncing their feet. You know, people are just kind of like a little bit anxious and they move around a lot. And they talk with their hands. And I, I was saying like in, I remember in, in grade school, you're in class or even in junior high where everyone's sitting at desks or high school. And there was always that person like had the bouncy foot. Yeah. They're doing soleus push-ups the entire time. And that increases your energy expenditure. That can account for two or 300, 400 calories a day perhaps. Holy shit. how much the person moves around. I mean, just standing increases your energy expenditure versus sitting. This is why the standing desks can be helpful for people just yeah. for low back pain, that sort of thing. But also you just move around more and you're expending energy just holding yourself up. So we've got a situation where some people, um, they it's about the calories. And if they do formal cardio, this interference effect, um, which we also talked about before we I'm tying all the things we talked about before we started recording into, into this like one little monologue, um, can be really extreme for some people. People just they do too much cardio, they lose their legs. Yeah. So they have to literally keep that interference effect out. If you look from a molecular basis, you do an endurance bout, you turn on a different set of genes. There's some overlap naturally. But you turn on a different set of genes than you do when you do resistance exercise. Yeah. Endurance exercise doesn't put on muscle mass. Resistance exercise does. There's some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you know, you look at marathoners, you don't see endurance extras, endurance athletes with big muscles, exception being maybe cycling. And that's a different story. So, but generally you've got individuals who are just going to, they're going to have that negative impact of doing cardio on their legs, especially if it's kind of low um, list cardio, low intensity, steady state. Um, some people can get away with that if they throw in high intensity interval training mm. and then they have to taper back their resistance training because that's going to do a better job as far as putting on muscle mass. You have, so to speak, legs that look more like a sprinter. Um, that's not everyone. So if you're someone who, who, who really has a negative effect from doing cardio in terms of holding on to size um, or gaining size, like say you have an off-season cardio, then going with neat and counting steps is going to make much more sense. Yeah. Right. Now, then there's also, you got to do what you got to do to get in shape. Right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're someone with a, with a, with a metabolism that is saying like, okay, we're not, we're not going below 8%. We're not getting shredded glutes. This is not something I want to do. And you're already down low in calories because that's just the way your, your body guards your set point in terms of body fat. You're going to need to expend those calories relative to what you're um, what you're eating to create the deficit you may have more a little more metabolic slowdown you may not even un, un, you may unknowingly be just moving around a lot less mm, um, yeah the, the step counting helps but like just the movement it's interesting i've got um my aura ring gives me my activity profile for the okay. day and there are days when i'm like out which is literally days when i go grocery shopping and i do um, you know, just running around town and I don't even know what it's, I didn't set it up. It's, it's some arbitrary preference that was in there as far as what my activity goal is for the day. And those days when I'm just out running errands, I will meet that goal sometimes like two o'clock. Really? Okay. Yeah. Like really early. It's like, okay, but that's just cause I got up and I, I went grocery shopping and I picked something else up and I did various things and yeah. I'm walking around, but I wasn't, I didn't, I don't have the sense. I didn't really expend a lot of calories. 
Then there are days when I actually work out and I train legs. I spend a lot of calories and I don't even get halfway to my goal until maybe five o'clock, six o'clock. No kidding. And I do a bunch of other things. I, if I go and I work in my um, work in my garage now or in my barn, and like yesterday I was sawing a bunch of stuff and I was cutting through shit and like doing a, literally some strenuous some strenuous work, it doesn't show up because it's just measuring movement. So you're doing isometric contractions. Oh. It doesn't get counted. So the things that you do during the day, this is why um, just the steps are one way to keep things sort of stable, but your energy expenditure is not going to be perfectly tracked by by your watch or your phone necessarily. And even this is the problem with these accelerometers, which is are basically how these are working, and it picks up on your relative movement through the day. Okay. Um, you could you could literally just put your if you really wanted to trick trick the system, just leave your leave your phone here sitting there, put your hand with your aura on the on the on the counter. Yeah. And then just, you know, kick your legs and go like this all day long, right? <laughs> right. You can spend a whole bunch of – but nothing's moving in this hand. That would be a really bizarre movement pattern. Yeah. So the underlying assumptions that are used to create the algorithms that give you an energy expenditure estimate um, can be can be fooled, and there can be some gross inaccuracies, yeah. which you have to account for. So some people – back to the topic – some people diet down, and they just stop moving around. They just, like – they, they – take more naps, which can be a very good thing, but this energy expenditure is in there. So they, they make up for that by doing a bunch of cardio. And there's actually some studies, like one particular study in, in older folks, where they looked at energy expenditure the best way they could, they measured it. And they, when they added cardio, they were so tired that they moved around less, they just rested the rest of the day, and their energy expenditure was actually less. No kidding. I could see that, man. Yeah. And I can see that yeah. in myself. By the way, I have... Two uh, stories to share later when we're done with this topic. Uh, just okay. funny stories I've heard about uh, Aura Ring or Apple Watch or step counters that uh, were kind of, okay. well, funny and bad. But uh, that makes sense. And you know what, man? I remember in like my last contest preps, times that I really would just sit there. like Because your energy gets so low that you end up, you know, you do your cardio but then you just sit there and you don't move like energy You're goes down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder yeah. if, if fat burners that do provide energy pre-workouts, things like that, I wonder if, you know, they aren't directly burning fat, but I'm thinking to myself like, man, if that stuff's getting you to move around more, huh? Absolutely. I wonder that that in itself is a fat burner then. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, they're going to shift you to using more fat because they're mainly there's some pathomimetic in some way. So they're, they're turning on fat use. They can also they could also cause more glycogen use, but that's not a problem if you're just moving around. Yeah, I can use a lot of glycogen with just normal day to day things. Weight training is a different story. Yeah, but so then, so then, then that actually is a, a great segue to this other thing that happens with cardio that you won't necessarily get when you're just counting steps or doing day to day things. Is you have a training effect, hmm. and this is sort of the thing that might account for why cardio is works really well for some people. Yeah, is is that you or shift your metabolism towards the use of fat in a couple of different ways at least. Hmm. Um, and if you're someone who can hold on, let's say you you just you have a good ability to gain muscle, probably means you have a good ability to retain muscle, especially in your legs. You might be able to do lots of cardio, which will reduce the glycogen levels. That will tend to shift the fuel that you use towards fat. Fuel oxidation is is a function of what's available. So if you have like zero glycogen, 
you don't have any carbohydrate available. You're not going to pull a bunch of glucose from your blood because you would go hypo and your, your brain wouldn't like that a whole lot. So if you got no carbs coming in, you got no carbs in the muscle cell, you're going to use fat. That's just how it is. So doing cardio tends to reduce the glycogen levels during the cardio and just during the entire day. That means more fat is being, is being oxidized, generally speaking. Hmm. And the other, the other thing that can happen, of course, with cardio is that you get cardio, you get a training effect, more mitochondria, and then you just have simply the, a better ability to oxidize fat. So, you know, you, you kind of turn yourself into a better fat oxidizer because hmm. you train the body to oxidize more fat and utilize fat by doing the cardio. What do you mean more, you more mitochondria? What does that mean? Um, the mitochondria are the quote unquote powerhouse powerhouses of the cell. So they're the they're the organelles that are responsible for aerobic respiration or oxidative phosphorylation. So when you bring glucose in or you use glycogen or fatty acids are oxidized for fuel from, from fat, either that you've eaten or that it's been removed from your been taken out of your fat cells. For those to be used aerobically where oxygen is involved, the mitochondria is where that all happens. Okay. So fat use is, is purely an aerobic phenomenon. It happens in the mitochondria. So more mitochondria means you can use more fat. And the more trained people at any exercise level or walking around, the more aerobically trained you are, the more mitochondria you have, um, the relative intensity is less in this mm. case. So... You take someone like who's completely untrained. Let's just take like the two ends of the spectrum, and you're gonna put them on a do an exercise test on a cyclodometer, and their VO2 max is low, and they can't really go very hard. You get them to 100 100 watts, 150 watts, 125 watts on the exercise bike, and they're like, oh shit, they're near the lactate threshold. They're really pushing. They're hurting because they're untrained and they don't have mitochondria to oxidize things. Mm-hmm. They need to go tap into their glycogen. They're not going to uh-huh. use much fat at all because it's really, really hard. It's very intense for them. Now you take Lance Armstrong, someone who's really trained, or someone maybe who's a bodybuilder who's also aerobically trained, and put them on at 150 watts on the bike, and that's they're not even they're not even breathing hard. It's so right. easy. So the intensity is low, and they can oxidize fat as a predominant fuel source because hmm. fat can only be oxidized very slowly. But it's it's like nothing. The intensity is really low. Yeah. So everything in terms of the relative intensity um, and thus the fuel sources that you use becomes lighter, easier, and more fat-oriented the more trained you get. So the more trained, aerobically trained person will use more fat at any given exercise intensity or any given walking speed or just in the day-to-day um, going about your business types of activities, your day-to-day activities of daily living. So... You might end up making yourself a better fat oxidizer in this situation, especially when you're like a month out and your body's like, ah, no, I want to break down protein. Hmm. I don't want to use fat. Having more um, fat available, or sorry, having more mitochondria there to oxidize fat can make you a better fat burner. Hmm. And here's the thing about doing morning cardio. Yes, fasted. Fasted cardio. Um, so like I said, this is, this is a little insight into just this is basic exercise physiology. Um, you use the fuel that's available. So, and some of that fuel selection is a function of insulin. So okay. insulin is, is when you eat carbs, you get insulin goes up. And if you eat, if you eat carbs before, or you've got carbs in your system, you've got insulin in your system because you've, you've eaten something, you've eaten meals previous, you do your cardio at the end of the day, let's say, you've just had a meal an hour beforehand. 
this is where people talk about the fat burning zone. Because of those carbs being available and insulin is, is basically telling your cells that you'll use more carbs just because the insulin is there. And even if we're given glycogen level, with huh. the, you'll have more insulin from the previous meals. And the, the effects of insulin linger for a long time. So you'll use more carbs. So what you're doing when you're getting a training effect during that afternoon cardio or late day cardio is you're basically training and using carbs during your training. So you're training your cells to use carbs. Yeah. Now let's imagine you wake up in the morning and haven't had anything to eat for eight, 10 hours. You're post-absorptive. Okay. And your insulin levels are low. Now, just because of being fasted, you're going to use more fat during morning cardio. So here's what people say. It doesn't matter. You expend 200 calories in the afternoon and it's all carbs. You spend 200 calories in the morning. It's all fat. Like it would never be all or none. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, but you, but those are all fat carbs. It's like, yeah, but it all fat calories, but it all matters how many calories all in all work out. It's, it's, you can't, you can't deny that law of thermodynamics, hmm. but, and they've seen this in some of the endurance. There was a, for a while they were investigating this. If you, you can train yourself to be a better fat oxidizer by training with a low carb, low insulin environment. So one of the, in the, just to get a little bit off topic in the endurance realm, um, carbo, carbohydrate was going to limit your performance when you're doing really long endurance. Stuff. This is why marathon runners will bonk. They run out of carbs, run out of glycogen. They have to slow down to some degree. So if you can train yourselves to use more fat, that spares glycogen. So there are lots of studies where they get people fat adapted. So they do actually have higher levels of the beta oxidative enzymes for fat oxidation, and they become a better fat burner. Problem is they can't train it so hard that way. Hmm. But you can train yourself to be better at oxidizing fat if you train when you're using fat as a fuel, right? It's yeah. like you want to get better at, at driving a, a Ferrari? Well, then you drive a Ferrari. If you want to get better at driving a, a giant 4x4 monster truck, then you drive a 4x4 monster truck. Hmm. You want to get better at oxidizing fat during exercise, then you train, you, ox- you exercise in a situation where you have to oxidize fat, which is fasted cardio. So you could make yourself, in addition to just becoming a better fat oxidizer by being um, more aerobically trained, you can amplify that effect potentially by doing fasted cardio, where you are oxidizing more fat. Calorically speaking, it's like, oh, well, it's still, you still have to have the deficit. But all in all, that deficit could come more, more so from fat if you're potentially, this is the mechanism that, that I'm thinking that might explain why some people seem to find that morning cardio, one physiological mechanism why morning cardio might help them and that they just have a better capacity to oxidize fat because they've trained their system to do that by doing cardio and in particular secondarily by doing cardio in the fasted situation where they hmm. oxidize fat primarily. Just turn yourself into a fat-burning machine. Yeah, that that makes total sense. And, and, I, and I've like, seen in my own yeah. life fasted cardio making a difference like i've i'd, I'd be yeah. it was interesting because dusty and i both had had said that that you know because you hear people who say and st- there's studies to show it doesn't matter what time you do it which is true like doing your cardio is going to be a lot more beneficial than not doing your cardio at all and and i would say logistics come in you know what i mean like maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense for somebody to do fasted cardio because they have to be to work at 4:30 in the morning and they're you know getting up at 3:30 or whatever maybe that doesn't make sense for their life and they'd be better off getting right. extra sleep but yeah when when it does make sense i have seen it make a difference in my life and in people that i've worked with 
Yeah, I mean, you take a un, untrained population and you put them in a caloric deficit with diet and the cardio, like you're going to get a pretty powerful fat loss effect because they're they're coming from presumably coming from their set point or settling point in terms of body fat. Yeah. The more body fat you have, the faster you lose it. Generally speaking, it's not the same situation when you're at six percent. You're trying to get the four. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're having to battle tooth and nail to do everything you possibly can, so that cardio forces that that caloric expenditure, which may not, might not be there. You might have back to the steps versus cardio thing or the neat versus cardio thing. If you just count your steps, but you're a zombie, like, okay, I got my 10,000 steps in. And then you go home and just sit down and you just like, you know, watch the paint dry on your walls, right? You're not expending any energy, right? Yeah. You've got those 10,000 steps in, but that does encompass all of your needs. But if you're adding cardio in, then you're ensuring at least that block mm. of, of energy expenditure that's there. Um, yeah, and then the other important thing that you know is mentioned all the time is you start your day off in the right way. If you get up in the morning, do fast cardio, or you do your cardio. Yeah, one, one you you tend to reduce your appetite. Like after training, even even when I'm like, this is true for lots of people. Even when I'm all the way dieted down, if I train really hard, I'm I'm not hungry after a workout. Yeah, you know, you're just kind of like so beat. So you get up in the morning and do your fasted cardio. And maybe you just have, you know, some amino acids or a protein. I'd suggest a whole protein meal. But, um, and you don't, you've missed, you've missed eating. You might wake up, you don't do your cardio. It's like, well, you have a, have a meal in there. So you, you basically have taken maybe an hour and a half, two hours of your day when you don't eat. All right. And you've done something to, instead of eating where you've got calories going in, you've got calories going out. Um, and that means you've condensed the period of the day. When you're trying to deal with your hunger and you know you're you're totally focused on food thinking about the next meal that's coming in um, because you've bypassed those two hours and I really think I haven't seen this study directly but I really think that there's something to say for this is maybe one reason although it doesn't pan out in the studies as well having more meals throughout the day can be effective mm. because you don't you're not in that like oh my god I'm so fucking hungry I could eat, you know eat the donkey's ass, right? You're like, you're like just starving. That creates a stress reaction. It can be uh, psychological, yeah. right? Cortisol is not your friend for holding on to muscle mass. Interesting. Um, yeah. So if you've got that coming in, I mean, it makes sense with the protein timing aspect, proteins, anti-catabolic, anabolic, et cetera. But just knowing you got another meal coming in keeps you out of that, like, Oh shit! Like I don't get to eat for two hours, and right now I'm just like I'm just totally stressing. I'm getting anxious. It's like nope, I'm gonna have a meal. I'll take the edge off. I think repeatedly taking that edge off over the course of four, five, six weeks when you're getting close to being in, in contest condition, yeah. that means less cortisol. And we know we know from the intra-workout studies. There's a, a study I talk about often with that Tar Penning did in like 2000, 2001, and they just gave carbs during an intra-workout. And that car, those carbs blunted the cortisol release huh. during um, during the training. And cortisol is a steroid hormone. It has a long-acting effect. It binds to a nuclear receptor, just like testosterone does, like other, other steroid hormones do. And by blunting, they looked at the extent to which cortisol was blunted, the, the elevations in cortisol across all their subjects. Yeah. And the lower the cortisol, the higher the muscle growth over the course of the resistance training regime, like eight or 12 weeks. We were just going to so, talk about this on the next uh, blood, sweat and gear too. a topic okay. came up. The idea of uh, okay. we're going to discuss like when are the benefits, what are the benefits of an intro workout? 
I, I mean, yeah. I feel like we're naturally kind of evolving this conversation. Yeah. I don't know how much more you have yeah. to say about cardio, but I feel like there's a natural step to a, another conversation here. Uh, yeah. You know, if there's anything else you wanted to mention about cardio, let's let's do that. But that could be a, a cool direction yeah. to go with this conversation next. I'll just say this. I, you know, I, that's the thing um, that's that's interesting to see with morning cardio. Yeah. Um, when you when you exercise and with when you don't have any incoming insulin, and amino acids have a little bit of this effect too. It's not the same to the same extent, but carbs for sure will blunt that cortisol release. So those things I just mentioned about cardio may play a role. And then another factor about being fed versus fasted is that if you're exercised to go all out of your cardio, you're going to elevate your cortisol. So we don't know about this in terms of holding on to muscle size or in the, you know, that last month or two, as far as cardio goes, but in this study by Tarpenning, when they were, when they were gaining muscle mass and they included just carbs, it was about 50 grams, actually Gatorade they use and ended up being about 50 grams for their, their average subjects. Okay. Um, they had various, um, to varying extent, there was suppression of, of cortisol, but it was pretty. It was basically on average down to nothing. Huh. Some people had more cortisol release without the Gatorade, some had less, and they lumped all their subjects together and they looked at the extent to which cortisol was elevated. This was resistance exercise, okay. and how much or how extent to which cortisol was suppressed. Either way you want to look at it, and type one muscle fiber growth and type two muscle fiber growth. Okay, and the lower the cortisol the higher, the greater the muscle growth. Huh. And that was just from using an intra-workout 50 grams of carbs. Interesting. And the, the reason why that would make sense is that without that cortisol release, which is a pretty substantial in exercise, it's there to foster gluconeogenesis to make uh-huh. sure that you've got you've got um, glucose available for the brain. It's just a normal stress hormone response, just like epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol. So the cortisol the, triggers that, that so that you can create gluconeogenesis to I'm just trying to re, re restate that for my own sure so so that's the reason though that's the reason of the cortisol is so that you can produce glucose for your brain from protein yeah while yeah, you're training. various things that are involved yeah that's one of the, it it up regulates an enzyme called if people are want to geek out uh, phospholipopyruvic carboxykinase in the liver okay. um, and that leads to gluconeogenesis but and it's it's sort of the evil cousin to insulin Right. So, okay. um, or one of them, you can, you can insulin and you, long story there. I'm not going to go off on that tangent, but if you take carbs in, you don't get the insulin release. I'm oh, sorry, the cortisol release. You get an okay. insulin release, you don't get the cortisol release. You don't need the cortisol release to, because you've taken the carbs you got, in. So you, you got get directly, carbs, right. you're bypassing, yeah. you're hacking your, your needs for your brain. Absolutely. And, and that's what huh. bodybuilding is a biohack anyway. So yeah. you do, in this case, the resistance training, you take the carbs in and they, I think they, did it before and immediately after, but they looked at the cortisol elevation during the course of the exercise yeah. and area of the curve. The more the extent to which you kept cortisol low, the greater the fiber growth. And here's the thing that cortisol, because it's a long acting um, hormone, steroid hormone, its effects are going to linger for hours, like 12, 18, 24 hours after oh, an exercise bout. No kidding. So yes, yeah, yeah. so you're going to, you're going to, it's going to, that, that massive, um, elevation is something which probably for an evolutionary reason, it's like, okay, you went out, you, um, you know, you chase something down, you didn't get any food afterwards, right? You know, you, you're hunt, you're hunting and gathering, you didn't find anything, but you exerted yourself. We got to make sure the brain's okay. So you can keep your wits about you. Yeah. And 
and hunt another day or gather another day. But if you if you hunted and gathered and you found something and you didn't you don't get the cortisol lease. Let's say you go out and you know you you capture whatever and you or you find some berries you eat. Well, then the cortisol is not needed because you you found some food, you found some nourishment, so your brain's happy go lucky. That makes sense. So, and that cortisol then hours afterwards would be providing glucose yeah. by breaking down protein, having its catabolic effect to make sure your brain's happy. You lose you know eight, ten, twelve ounces of muscle, and the next day it's okay. If your brain's working, because eventually you can find something to keep you up and running. Yeah. Um, for bodybuilders, it's not what we want. So preventing that cortisol elevation has an impact on protein balance. This is just, I had to kind of piece this together because people haven't measured the protein balance out that far that I've seen in the literature. Okay. Um, in the exercise science literature. But preventing that cortisol release, definitely was the correlations were like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. I think it was like 0. 0.82 or 0. 0.85. That's a really strong correlation between – it was an inverse correlation between cortisol and type, type 1 and type 2 fiber growth. Huh. So back to cardio then. One of the things that you know could play a role with morning capacity cardio is if you have a big cortisol release, that could work against you. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. So one thing that could make sense – this is – I mean, this is why some people may find they have better success with essential amino acids because that will blunt the cortisol release a little bit. Uh, it does not in the same way as carbs, but it will it will have a, a somewhat of an impact um, potentially. Or have your meal right afterwards. Yeah. So you do your cardio. Maybe you get the fat training effect from cardio. This is all. This is totally wild ass guesses. This is just me speculating because it's fun to do as a physiologist, right? Okay. Okay. But. You get the training effect because you train without the carbs and then you do your best to limit the cortisol because you don't like just run around faster the entire time. Yeah. Um, you take your carbs in and you do a post-workout or you or, – or maybe you do your cardio faster beforehand before you train in the morning. Okay. And you can get that – they can get that effect. You'll turn on those genes potentially. Who knows what the timing – how the timing matters there. And then you maybe use an intra-workout while you're training. Yeah. Because carbs during your intra-workout can actually – foster um actually has performance potential it's an ergogenic can have an ergogenic effect sure um yeah even if you're not glycogen depleted um, what, what about uh i've heard of this we've talked about it before um on on blood sweat and gear and i remember you and i well, actually you and I, I well you and jordan had had a conversation about this once obviously years ago yeah. Um, using a low dose of insulin fasted before cardio. Yeah. What's, what's the deal with that? And and let me also say that that's not something that either of us are suggesting anybody goes out and tries because I feel like that could end up really bad, especially for somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, there's a couple different scenarios where someone would do that. Some people, if your glucose does go down, that will foster more fat oxidation. Right. Right. And what would typically happen there is you'd have a, a low glucose would, would, would tell the brain we need to, we need to provide some fuel, fuel to actually get some cortisol release too, along with that. Um, and then you'd have more fat oxidation. So lower glucose does tend to mean more fat oxidation. Now, if you've lowered your glucose with insulin, yeah, um, exogenous insulin, insulin usually goes down during exercise. Um, and that allows glucose to be available for the brain. Ah. Um, yeah. So you, you want to have less insulin around because you don't want to be taking up blood glucose into skeletal muscle cells. Okay. 
double, triple your blood flow to skeletal muscle because you're exercising, that means you're doubling or tripling the, the delivery of insulin to those skeletal muscles. Huh. So insulin's action is going to, if insulin just stays the same, insulin's action is going to go way up. That's going to pull the glucose into the skeletal muscle cells to be oxidized. So you want you don't want that. You want the opposite to happen. Yeah. So that's normal exercise physio- exercise regulation. Insulin goes down. You don't draw the blood glucose into your skeletal muscle cells. You leave it available for the for the brain to use. Now, if you take insulin, a little bit of insulin, and you reduce your glucose, the thinking would be, well, glucose goes down, fat fat oxidation goes up. It's like, well, okay. And this is where you know I haven't seen anyone anyone do this. It'd be kind of a dangerous thing, but. One, we know that insulin inhibits lipolysis. So insulin isn't going to – if you've got elevated insulin levels because you've jacked it up artificially, yeah. you're going you're gonna to tend to limit your fat oxidation yeah. eventually. Um, so that's not going to help your cause. Huh. Um, if your glucose goes so low that you start to get actually hypo, and anyone who's gone hypo from insulin use, let's say, or just in general, like you, you get this massive sympathetic sympathetic response. You start sweating, it's not et cetera, fun. et cetera. Yeah, that's not fun at all. And, and that would then trigger more lipolysis yeah. because you're 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 basically in a, a blood glucose crisis state. Um, and that's not a, probably the smartest way to go about doing all this. Um, the other thing that that some people I know have had. A, um, it's helped them with, and this makes sense because your your body is you know it's pretty resilient. Is if you're and, and not that it fucking matters so much. Pardon my French, but people who are doing like ketogenic diets, they want to get into ketosis as fast as possible. There's sure. some evidence that you know just there's there's inefficiencies in oxidating oxidizing ketones. You make ketones and then you oxidize them again, so this back and forth. It's it's kind of like it's excess movement of substrate so you oxidize uh, you know maybe less than 100 extra calories a day if you know by being in a, in a deep state of ketosis so people were looking for that like that's the magic of ketosis but really the magic of ketosis are low carbs is that you're ap- for many people your appetite's really low yeah so people who doing like a cyclical ketogenic diet they would be in ketosis throughout the week and then they carb up like a mofo and then they want to get back into ketosis as soon as possible yeah. And if you've just carved up and like, you know, take it in massive eating like bags of bagels and, you know, <laughs> all, all that you could think of, your glycogen levels are full, your liver glycogen levels are full, your insulin levels are high, your insulin sensitivities maybe gone down a tad. It makes sense because your glycogen levels are filled up. Um, and it's going to take you a couple of days to get into and to get into ketosis. Um, those ketogenic enzymes in the liver seem to be upregulated and they stay upregulated for a while. Hmm. Kind of, kind of cool, and I'll tell you what I, how I kind of know that, or why I suspect that at least. There's probably um, um, Dominic D'Agostino probably can tell you 15 studies that support or refute this idea because he's the ketosis guru. But uh, um, so people would, when they're getting ready to get off, stop the carb load, and they want to get back into ketosis, there are people who would, and again, not su- suggesting this, but it would work for them. They would do cardio like Sunday night. And use a little bit of insulin to bring their glucose down, and it would push them a little bit into hypoglycemia or getting closer, and that would foster ketogenesis. And then they wake up the next day in ketosis. Um, they're not going like overtly hypo and like, oh my god, they're like just shaking around the room, <laughs> you know, having an episode. Yeah. Um, but that would help some people start uh, to turn on and sort of restart that ketogenesis. But they would take in no carbs afterwards. Um, 
So that would that seemed to work. Something about the combination of those two things. And then they wake up the next day and they're in ketosis, so they're not hungry. So it's easy to go right back to their diet. They just help sort of switch right. hormonally and metabolically into the ketosis, so it helps them with their brain. They they pee on their keto sticks. Like okay, I've got ketonuria at least. They feel better. Like <laughs> yeah, ketonemia. Yeah, exactly. And they're and they're back in it. So they would just to make flip that switch. Yeah. People would do that, but I don't know. Like that's the thing. I would love to see someone. You know, you have to. You, kind of tough to find a rationale because it's just bodybuilder stuff. But if you use insulin to reduce your glucose, which, you know, lower glucose meaning more fat oxidation, yeah, that, that that's true. But when you've elevated your insulin to bring the glucose down, you've also elevated insulin, which means you've reduced fat oxidation. Yeah. So you're maybe just totally shooting yourself in the foot. Um, but the placebo effect's a powerful, powerful effect too. Huh. So, you know, we- sometimes it's – you just like to do as much shit as you can. Like I'm dotting every I and crossing every T and I got my mojo working. So you keep doing that. You know, you do everything perfect. If you feel like you're excelling because you're doing the shit the other guy isn't doing, then that feeds into itself. And your mentality is like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss a meal. I'm not going to miss a step of cardio, whatever. And sometimes bodybuilders do that. It's, you know, they, they self uh, perpetuate their own disciplined style of going about the, the prep by doing all the shit, like everything, right, right. whether it works or not. I don't know if morning cardio works, but God damn it, I'm going to get up, rise and grind, and I'm going to do that shit. Yeah. And that feeds into a positive at- attitude, which is worth it you know, so in many cases. I thought of something else, and I think that that's yeah. where Andrew Nolan was going. And by the way, shout out to everybody who's watching live, to Matt, and thank you for supporting us on Patreon, Lucas, and Brian, and uh, Andrew Nolan. So, I think this is what Andrew Nolan's getting at. Um, he says, uh, uh, what if we were to use oral PEDs? When I was working with Matt Porter, he had me uh, taking, actually chewing, Anivar 45 minutes pre-fasted cardio uh, under 30-minute sessions and taking EAAs and 20 grams of carbs, last 10 minutes of cardio, if longer than 30 minutes. And what I kind of wanted to tie in with that was my thought was you were talking about uh, the issues that you can have from cortisol training. My question would be, I, I actually what I think a lot of people will say on YouTube is, well, that maybe affects somebody who's natural, but what about if you're right. on PEDs? So. Right. So, boom. I, it's funny, Matt keeps on coming up. I, I miss that guy. You know, we had... He was a great mind in our industry. He really really was, was. you know. We had a conversation at the Arnold Classic, which is one of my favorite conversations. Like, we stood there for like two hours and finally had to go because he was neglecting all of his athletes and stuff. But um, so, gear is going to block the cortisol receptor. Yeah. Right? Matt knew this. It's probably why he was having him do that. Because you want to, you're basically, you can use a pre workout. Anavar or you know whatever oral someone might be using because it has the psychological effect as good as a um, literally a pre workout to stimulate get you up and running. Yeah. Um, and same thing with cardio. If you're doing hard cardio, like it's not it's not necessarily the most exciting thing. You're not enthused to get on there and do that. Um, so it has that psychoactive effect, um, but also it's going to have an anti cortisol effect and, and an anabolic effect, of course, too. Yeah. And the second thing in, in his question there, he had EAAs and carbs during that last ten minutes. There's a gastric delay, especially when you're exercising. Ah. So that was that was a timing <laughs> scenario. I presume that's what Matt was doing. That makes this sense. This is why 
Yeah, like you, you like you, you're still oxidizing fat. It's going to take a while for that to get in your system. And right when you literally, you, you're you're letting the that into the system. Right when you stop your cardio, your insulin's going up, and you're blunting any cortisol as much as possible. So he's blunting it during the workout without having an effect on insulin. Yeah. Um, with the gear, potentially, just thinking of for the through the lens of cortisol now. Right. And then he's blunting it right afterwards by making sure you're providing amino acids and cortisol, which does have a combination does have a better effect. Um, you get you can get a synergy between essential amino acids or, or protein in general and carbs in terms of insulin. Some couple studies, Zawadzki is a study that's for instance, for instance demonstrated that. So yeah, he's doing that just because that's about like that ten minutes makes about makes good sense. That's incredible. For, I've never heard that before. Yeah. That's why I have when I do I call it peri workout recovery supplementation. You start that before you go you start training. Yeah, like fifteen minutes to get it into your system. You start drinking it like in your first second set. You've the very act of doing the cardio or doing training. Yeah. Um, the sympathetic activation is the opposite of parasympathetic. It's the opposite of, of digestion. Yeah. So you, you're you're basically turning off those features. It's 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 an unnatural act to take in food while you're exercising with, with a very high intensity. Sure. You know, you don't like typically think I'm going to have a, you know, have a burger and fries while I'm doing squats. Yeah. You know, unless you're at planet fitness, um, but that's right. Story. <laughs> right. Then, then they're serving you pizza, right. you know, while you're, while you're doing knee extensions. Um, so, <laughs> but that's, you, but you're manipulating your hormones, which is, you know, what part of what bodybuilding is natural or otherwise more so in the, in the otherwise. But so that's what Matt was doing was trying to like, Probably, I don't know if he was thinking about, maybe he was, I'm not going to underestimate Matt in any way, shape, or form. Maybe he was thinking about getting the fasted cardio effect. Maybe he wasn't thinking about enzymes per se, but keep the cardio fasted, but yeah. then prevent that that negative catabol- catabolism that could come from not eating anything right after, you, right after you work out, which holds true, I think, for training. You wake up in the morning and you wait training, you're like, okay, that's good. I'm going to go to work now and I think I'll have some lunch four hours later. Right. That's probably a no-go. So, and this is the thing, and, and again, in this intra-workout talk that I'm doing on, on Thursday, um, and I mentioned this here before too, is like it's only small little shifts in protein metabolism that make a huge difference over the long haul. That seven grams per day um, of protein, positive protein balance, assuming it all goes into skeletal muscle mass, means 28 grams, means about one ounce of new muscle mass a day. You do that 365 days in a year, and that's like that's like 22.8 pounds of muscle in a year. So you eat 200 grams of protein, and and you only oxidize and replace with 193, and you get seven grams. That's that's you know that's 28 calories. It's not a whole lot. It's a small no. shift. So you think about that situation when when you're training, um, and you've got elevated breakdown during the training. Imagine the fastest situation, and you but you also got elevated synthesis. Yeah. So the, that's why training does what it does. Is it? It's a period of extremely high turnover in terms of protein synthesis. So if you take in carbs and protein during that time period, um, that's when you can most make a shift. And if it's only literally like two grams of protein with a with a, a sizable intra workout, that's maybe the size of one of your meals, yeah. as opposed to nothing, and then waiting like an hour until you get dressed and have a shower and then have your meal. Um, and that just means two grams of like eight calories, right? That's just, that's teensy, but two grams over the course of a year, 
you add that up and you know do the math that two grams is like 10 pounds of 10 pounds of muscle mass if that were every day yeah yeah and if if it's just the four days of the week you train it's still five five gram five pounds of muscle mass hmm. or six pounds so it's little itty bitty things like throwing in your your intra workout or your post workout after cardio so it hits you right then and adding those little itty bitty things together <laughs> yeah. over the course of being consistent day in and day out that turns people into monsters. You yeah. know? I feel like we're, some of us are missing that. I think that mm-hmm. it, because the, the, the little things, those are easy to, it, it's easy to not see the difference in your day to day. And I think it's easy for us to say, oh, we don't need to do that. You don't, you just need to eat a mm-hmm. You don't need, there's a lot of little things, I guess that to me, and, and I'm just speaking my own thoughts, like just what I'm having right now in reaction to this, that I think that as, and, and you know, I watch what a lot of our audience is saying, I watch a lot of the attitudes and responses and, and I almost feel like this is good for us to hear that a lot of us could all be thinking a little bit more about those little things and about adding them up, you know? Yeah. So on the, on the one side, we have the research, which is largely just because you get a good effect yeah. with untrained people. And so like you'd like Brad Schoenfeld's, you know, um, fasted cardio scenario, you know, his study didn't really show any difference. Yeah. Um, and we, when we talk about the one legged study that I love to harp on five times a week versus two times a week versus three times a week training on average, it didn't make a difference, but you look at the individual responses, it did make a difference. Yeah. So we've got studies that show you the generalizability of a particular intervention inter-workout versus no inter-workout or what have you. And they may show nothing. But within that, in the study, which is largely untrained individuals who aren't at 6%, um, you know, and they're very short-term, you may have some individuals who respond well and some who don't. Sure. So, And you wouldn't know that unless you tease out the individual responses and look and see, like, you know, for this person. And that's the nice thing about the, you know, the one-legged study. You can't, like, do an inter-workout unless you do a crossover. You can, you know, you can't take an untrained person and start training them with an intro workout, and then go back in time and put them in the same space they were, and then train them without the intro workout or the other way around. Uh-huh. Right? But you can do a one-legged study like that and keep everything the same and train one leg one way and the other leg the other leg other way. Yeah. You could do, you could do, and they do this with the, some of the intro workout studies. You could do, a, you could do a study where you train like one leg fast in the morning, and you train the other leg. Um, with an intro workout after they fed throughout the day, <laughs> which would be very cool, right? If you guys do that, make sure you do it with your weaker leg. Give it, you give your weaker leg the cards, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, I mean, you do it yourself, but that'll be a great study to do. You just have to have, to have them come back to the to the lab twice yeah. a day, you know, and keep everything as close to the same as you, as you possibly could. They've, some of the studies I'll talk about in this in this webinar, they've um, they do uh, they look at diet the diet and they see no difference between the groups in terms of the total calories were taken in. Um, but in one of the studies, for instance, they did um, a pre and post workout supplement and they compared that with the same supplement taken in, in the morning and in the evening. Okay. So first thing of the day, end of the day. So it's far away from training. So the yeah. calories came in, but the timing itself made a difference. Everything else is exactly the same. It was just a function of whether they did or didn't have the workout, the, the intra workout period workout huh. was before and after okay. in place. That's one study. And that showed that effect. So the thing, and you can call it cherry picking, that totally makes sense. It is, I find the best studies because, you know, 
you look at those circumstances, it tells you that it can possibly happen. And that uh, that tells you that there's something, there's potentially something here, just like the study with five versus three versus two times a week. Yeah. The first study says this doesn't make a difference, right? So, but you look individually, it does make a difference. So if you find a study that does show a difference and the other studies don't, well, that says that in that particular study, there was enough of a systematic difference amongst those subjects to find a difference. Yeah. Which tells that there's something there. So, you know, take that information and then apply this sort of thing to, you know, a bodybuilder who's trained. And so let me, I'll go back. So we got the studies that show you, does it actually work out in the real, real world? And those studies largely, you read the discussions, you read the foreword, the introduction information. There's some physiological principle. There's some rationale as to why we think this might happen. Um, and you look at then the scenario with a competitive bodybuilder who's 6%. And it's like, can you imagine a study? It's like, okay, I want to take all you guys who are four weeks out and we're going to start fucking around with your, your pre-contest. We're going to let, not let some of you have take the intra-workout, which we suspect would, would help you hold on to muscle. And we're going to just, we just sacrifice, you know, yourself yeah. for the next, no one's going to do that. You're not going to I want that. every edge I could possibly have. I, the only yeah. way I do the study is if I could be the guy with the, with the supplements, you know? Right, right, <laughs> right. And maybe yeah. after your show, you do something else, you know, you cross over or what have you. But yeah. so you're left in the most cases to say, okay, you know, we've got maybe some evidence from direct studies that suggest an effect like with the interwork, we actually have that. Yeah. Um, and we've also got the physiological principles, which is what, you know, Matt was probably working under. You know, you're not going to get a study where they're like saying, oh, chew your Anavar before you do your cardio. I'm just going to study no, that, right? No, no, there's no it's study not on happen. that. Or the timing, that sort of thing. But there's there's a reason, as we just talked about and explained, that those things might make sense. And and over the long haul, here's the problem, like with just the, the shift in two grams of protein balance four times a week that makes a difference in terms of four or five pounds of muscle. Yeah. Add that up, like purely mathematically. That's 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 an that's a that shows up on the stage. Those are impressive, impressive gains. Yeah, or impressive difference. That that does pan out in the real real world. But you have in order to see that itsy bitsy effect, you'd have to study someone for a year with and without. You, you just yeah. those studies just are not they can't they're just improbable. You're just not going to do those sorts of things. So you you're, you have to rely upon the physiological principles, which Matt was doing, and then your practical quote unquote clinical experience. So this does seem to make a difference. Hmm. Um, and that's, um, yeah, this is a reason why I'm not just like in terms of like Matt and John, like two, two guys. Um, I don't know if Nick Wary's um, watching right now. He may have chimed in. He, he was here earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nick and I were chatting. Was it yesterday? I think we we're chatting and he was, he was talking not to be more, but he's like, you know, man, if I die, you know, whenever I'm hoping that, you know, up in heaven, I can sit down with, with, John and Matt and you, and we can just talk bodybuilding shit for days. Like that'd be my, my, my sense of heaven. Um, and that's why John and Matt were so good in particular, because they were also competitors and there are certain things that, and I have done the same sort of thing. You test things out with yourself and you have this personal level of experience. You can see when these things happen and you have a good sense of what's working that, you know, you say you have five, five clients and you say, like, like take the NFR before your cardio, whatever. Yeah, and is it working? Well, there's a reason why they hired you as a uh, as a coach because they want you to do the figuring out, and they may not even want to think about what's going on. Yeah, but if you're the coach, if you're the actual client, or you're the, the actual athlete doing these things, 
then you actually are paying attention. You're seeing these things. So I would be uh, Matt talked very openly about the things he did, and John John did too, especially near the end there. But I'm sure that Matt actually tried that out himself, and he noticed maybe he noticed something. Yeah. Yep. Um, or at least hypothesized. So these these little things that you know you can see from a case study perspective doesn't mean it's going to happen for everybody. There's limitations to a case study or just you know the the one end of one, so to speak. Yeah. But it tells you that there's there's potential there. It may only work in 10, 15 percent of the people. And the thing, talking back to intra-workout in general, um, and you know protein timing, what have you, the thing that you know is lost sometimes when you get online and people are like ah the studies don't support that what have what have you. I also don't know of any studies, for instance, when it comes to fasted cardio, venture workout that says it works against you, hmm. right? Is, is there a negative effect there, hmm. right? Now, if you try to take in 1,500 calories during your workout, your workouts would probably be messed up. That's just sort of silly. Yeah. But, you know, let's say you, you employ 10 things and, you know, only a handful of them maybe have some empirical support. Um, and the other ones maybe do have something that may work. And none of those things have any reason. You have no evidence, scientific or otherwise, to think that they would have a negative impact. Yeah. But they all have either scientific support or theoretical underpinnings. Seven or eight of them work, and they all inch you forward a little bit because you're doing everything. You're dotting every I and crossing every T and turning every dial. Well, then you've turned a lot of dials. Yeah, you have. Yeah. And, and then that adds up over time. That's why you see people who get better and better year in, year out, because they're turning all the dials and they're, they're doing their bodybuilding 24-7. That's why it's considered a lifestyle and so difficult to do. It's not like, you know, lots of sports where you can you can maybe get away with not being a bodybuilder around the clock. I think, you know what I, I speculate is, because I have seen some pushback to being sure that you turn all those dials to get all the quarter percents. I think it might right. be because... There are so many, so many people that miss the foundations. You know what I mean? And and yeah. that you, you know, I think that a lot of times people have been hitting home the point that you have to make sure you get that first ninety nine percent taken care of. The mm -hmm. training, the you know, the optimal training, the continued keep an eye on making sure that your training's the optimal training. You know, optimal rest, optimal food, and optimal supplementation, and then those little percents. I, th I think that might be, because I was thinking yeah. about why have I felt pushback? And I think that's why, you know, because I have seen that where people are so yeah. focused on this peptide that might give me a little fraction of a percent, but they're missing right. the boat on the big picture, you know? Yeah, I mean, like for instance, um, it was kind of big news years ago, Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld came up with their protein timing review. Um, and they looked, and they looked, I think they did analysis as well. And they only had, I think, like 19 studies. Only three or maybe four of them were with trained individuals. But okay. it didn't seem to be like an anabolic window, so to speak, in those studies. Ah. Um, but, um, but they only had four studies with trained individuals where it, it might make a difference. It's mm -hmm. got such a dramatic effect. It's like you've got a ceiling effect with untrained individuals. It grows so well. That's why it's nice. You get a statistical effect because they grew. They got yeah. stronger. Everything, they had an adaptation but it's also maybe maxed out. So those little things don't make a difference because it's such a novel stimulus. Ah. It's like, it's like the first time, you know, you use someone responds to gear really well and they, they just, they put on 30 pounds, a lot of it's water and fluff, but yeah. they just grow like weeds. It's like, so did it matter whether I had 10 grams of EAAs in my interworkout workout yeah. or not? <laughs> no, it doesn't make any difference. Um, but in that particular meta-analysis, one thing they did is they looked at total protein intake and there was, there was, in this case, talking about fundamentals, there was an effect 
that having more more protein intake above like the 1.6 grams per kilogram, if I remember correctly, um, made a difference. There was a kind of a, a, a middle point. Less than that wasn't enough. More than that was better. That's what we see from the literature. And there's another, CIRMAC is a, another resource from like 2008. A, another meta-analysis showed the same thing. So if an intra workout, for instance, allowed you to get above or was part of getting above that requisite protein intake that you need for growth, it made a difference. So yeah, it's yeah. Not, and and I you see this too. It's like it's like people are like, okay, like today you're you're out traveling or whatever. You got some life circumstances and you're trying to you're in you're in an off season. You're trying to gain and you need to get your calories in. And it's like, no, I need to have my rice and my chicken exactly. And you go someplace and you forget it. You leave it on the kitchen counter and you get that there. And like, okay, I'm ready for my meal. Like, oh, shit, I forgot all my meal. So you're at the county fair and all you have is like burgers, you know, and, and you're like, well, I'm not going to eat that. So the whole day you don't eat anything because you're not on neighbor chicken and rice. It's like, no, you need the calories. Yeah. You know, the basics need to happen. So those, if you put the icing before the cake, some of those finer details before the obvious, like you need the caloric excess, you can, you could have a, you know, a, a greasy burger maybe and, and it's not going to kill you because you're, you're trying to gain every single day. You're trying to keep the, the, the wheel moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. People, people, and, and, and those, that's, those, that's just fun, right? It's cool to like get all the bells and whistles out and, and try a supplement and like, Ooh, I got this crazy gain from this. Absolutely. Um, and, and just like being consistent and eating when you don't want to, or like eating on the clock or that, that's not as fun for everyone. Um, so that's, I think why we we're, we're always looking for a magic bullet, the golden, the golden solution. Yeah. Right. So yeah. these things are not that, but but they can't. They can be. They can part of be part of your a part of your basics. You bring your you bring your intra workout. The thing I suggest to people because I've seen this a good bit is, and this is important to say with as far as intra workout goes, the point is to have the nutrition available during the workout. So you have protein and carbs basically, and you want to have that there for the insulin effects, for the anti catabolic and the protein synthetic effects for the potential ergogenic effects, maintaining glycogen levels that you come, come with the carbs. Um, it's also potentially a, there's a mouth rinsing effect too. You can actually mm. get an ergogenic effect just from rinsing with a sweet solution that you don't actually swallow. We talked about so, that. It happens it, in the brain. Didn't, it wasn't Chris yeah. Bearcat part of that, uh, some research yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. They were going to do that. I'm not sure if that ever came out. I, to, I, don't, I don't know if they published that yet, but there was, yeah, that was something we were going to do or they were going to do. And I was going to at least look a little over the manuscript. I wasn't involved with the study, but, we and I talked about it a good bit. So people do that. Like, ah, does it matter? And then you can figure something out by taking it out. Does yeah. it make a difference to me? We should get you know, him back going on the along show. With it. We should. We can, I can do that. I chat with Chris all the time. That'd be cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So those those things, you know, they the, with the intro workout, having the if you eat an hour beforehand, you don't want to drink something. Um, during the workout because it's just not your thing and you can get up some food before and after and you've got nutrients in the bloodstream, yeah. you're good to go. Problem solved. You're not going to see much from an intra workout. But if you're waking up in the morning and you otherwise wouldn't be eating until an hour after your after your workout when you're on the train going to work or, or what have you, you're drinking a shake after you've showered and shaved and everything else, it can make a difference because you're trying to fill nutrients in and push your body to do something it's not necessarily wanting to do. So, um, yeah, it's all situational. Like, like most of these things are no, no black and white, unfortunately. Well, I, I did promise that I was going to share two stories that I heard oh, and they okay. were about, Please. uh, the step counting. 
it just yeah. random stories I had heard on an, on a radio show where they were talking about people who were counting steps and and basically doing things to one woman was misleading her uh, step counter by putting it. I guess she was having an affair with a guy around the block and she was telling her <laughs> husband that she was going out jogging and she'd go to his house. Oh, shit. And they literally put her phone or whatever whatever device she had, her Fitbit, they would put it in the dryer and turn it on and then go do what they wanted to do. And then when they're done, she pulled out of the dryer and go home. And it said she had all these steps. Oh. And then another couple, they, the couple had synced their their watches up or whatever whatever i can't remember what device they had so you know scott you and i we both have the aura ring i'm sure that we could probably link ours up and we could compare stats and see who burnt more cal see who had more steps yesterday well i guess that he was consistently um his heart rate was consistently going up at like 2 a.m when he was should have been sleeping she event she put it together she's like why was your heart rate up for 45 minutes between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. when you're supposed uh-huh. to be sleeping. And every Tuesday, that happens. And the guy was like, yep, I was cheating on you. Oh, wow. Yeah, so technology yeah. going to bite people in the in the butt, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's um, something I've talked about um, with friends before who've kind of been in, and out in the dating ringer. Yeah. Is that, a, you know, a thing that to know, like a way to like, especially nowadays, the way to sort of substantiate that you've got good trust with yeah. your significant other is when you can give her or him your phone. Absolutely. You and Absolutely. Whenever you want. Yeah. Because there's so much in there, right? Like you can hide so many things. It's like, yeah, it's basically, you're just unlocking so much. Yeah. And they'll see what you're getting. If you're getting messages on social media from men or women, you know, unsolicited, they see who you're chatting with. Like, Absolutely. Unless you like go and get a second phone, but that's like that's something <laughs> that you can you can yeah, right. you can just use that as like a, a marker for the extent to which you feel comfortable and, and trustful and open with someone. It's like what I feel be okay just saying, "Here, honey, here's here's my phone. You can see, look at whatever you want because there's no, I have nothing to hide." Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's an eye opener for some people because. Um, especially it's a way I think for people who maybe haven't been successful in relationships. Cause I mean, heck we all, we all have, we all have a costume we wear to some degree, unless sure. you're enlightened, you know, you know, we all are like, I'm performing right now. Right. I, Absolutely. I kind of get, I kind of get, you know, pretty animate when I'm talking about this shit anyway, but you know, I'm making sure that I've got a continuous flow of information because people are watching the podcast because they're, they want to to learn something. So I'm in my teacher mode. Yeah. So we're always in every relationship and every social contact. We're always putting on different faces and those sorts of things. Absolutely. And with our most intimate ones, we tend to do that too. And I've been, I've had, I mean, we're not going to get it unless someone wants to know, but you know, I, I know that I've, there are certain things that I've done and it was sort of brought into me from my family of origin you know, that I, I would, I, part of my value, my worth in relationship, just in general and in romantic relationship, was that I had the sense I had to be valuable in terms of I could help somebody. So I take on this helper role, the knighting, shining, shining armor role. Yeah. And um, and so I would give and give and give and give and give. So that's just the personal um, insight that I figured out. So everyone does that to some degree in various relationships, unless you really, really worked and a really point i'm getting at is that a really kind of cool way that you can kind of like 
put a litmus test to to sense to which you're actually just being yourself and being open and honest and just letting it all show to your significant other is like just give them your phone. Yeah. And then and think about what would they see in there that might surprise them huh. but that you wouldn't want them to see because you're not even thinking like, gosh, I'm hiding that. Like they know that I'm, um, you know, in some certain Facebook group. Right. Oh, so yeah. Why are you in that Facebook group? I didn't you're know DMing that, I some person or having some, you know. Right. You know what right. I, I think? And I think here's the thing is I my thought is, you know, our, if you're doing something that you don't think is right. If, if you don't think it's right, then it probably doesn't sit with your your own personal code. And if you're not following your own personal code, then you're not you're not in a you know, you're not living your life the way you want to be living it. And so, I, yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good thing to consider, you know, but get yourself and in I a think- position, get yourself in a position where you're comfortable with sharing your phone and whether they look at it or not, you know, cause there's, you could, we could go into so much with that. Cause then if you have a significant other, that's constantly wanting to check your phone and prove, you know, that you're not messing around, then that's, that's a problem too. Right. There's a trust issue. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think the thing that, that I'm, I totally agree with what you said is that that's super important. If you know you're doing shit you shouldn't be doing, then okay, there's an issue there. But sometimes I think because you've been in this pattern, um, you don't even recognize that. So ima- just mm. imagine you're actually giving your significant other their phone and thinking from their perspective, what would they see? Because you're busy doing yeah. this and you're going about it and somehow in your head you rectified it. Like it's you're not probably walking around with just overburdened with guilt or w- you wouldn't keep on doing it, yeah. right? But if they caught you, then you have shame. Yeah. So guilt sort of internal. I guess I'm, you know, I, I, shouldn't, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but shame is like some shame on you for doing that. Someone else is... So you can imagine like what that shame might be coming from your partner, your mom, like or whatever, someone who's, you know, an outside authority figure or someone who who you want to want to um, be doing the right thing in their eyes. Yeah. And then it's, it's kind of a nice like, OK, shit, that's a that's a really good litmus test. I I recognize that I shouldn't be doing that. All right. You know, the way I interact, like I think women tend to do this more so than men. It's a societal thing. This isn't bashing on women, but um, women often want, want to have um, uh, the outside attention from men just to, just as a, a way of sort of boosting their self-esteem and bodybuilding men do this too. Yeah, we so do. Guys, men men do it yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so you get like, if imagine a guy who's got like women just, you know, yeah. creeping into his DMs, sliding into his DMs and, and he's interacting with them, you know, but unnecessarily like he's just right. like having this perpetual and like none of it's gone overtly sexual. But but it's um, it's an emotional infidelity, yeah. Because he's riding on that, he's getting all this attention, you know, and and he's having like this like hidden the secret friendship with a female. It's like so, who is this person, right? Yeah. Um, I think some that happens sometimes innocently, and then it does become an actual true infidelity. But so those sorts of things that you don't necessarily recognize. I think that people, and I'm speaking from myself too, like just what is like, what are the things that I do that I might do? And I, I ran myself through this filter a long time ago, so I don't have anything to hide. I don't have a I'm not in a relationship right now, but um, it's a good filter to apply. It's like, what about my online life, my phone life, my hidden life is something that I wouldn't want my best friend or someone who I want to be doing the right thing in their eyes. Cause I care about them. What about that behavior? Um, would be looked at with a little bit of a, you know, a, a strange eye if they knew about it. 
Yeah. And yeah. And you know what, you too? It's like, yeah. my thought on it is, is the, this, that, and, and it, I'm just going to kind of almost repeat what I said before was that if you're not okay with that, then you're not, if, if you're not okay with that, then you're not living the life that you, yeah. that you, you're not living by your own code. And I feel like yep. that's what leads us to unhappiness is not living by our own code. So it's, it, who right. cares what other people would think, you know, but if you yeah. don't, if you feel like you did, you're doing something wrong, then don't change it so that you don't get caught. My thought is change <laughs> right. it so that you're living by the code that you, that you stand by. And that's yeah. kind of, to me, what like feeling like you're doing, you're living a good life is about. Yeah. Get right with yeah. the Lord, y'all. No, I just kidding on right. that part. But and, and I think people by by applying the phone rule, they can evaluate themselves, their own behavior, exactly like you said, yeah, in a way yeah. that they're unaware of. I think people are like they don't know, they're not sure what they're up to because they're just doing all this and they see it as sort of innocent, and then they think of it the phone like, oh shit, okay, that feels like I get it now. I see yeah. why I shouldn't be doing that because you imagine what the other person would say, and it, it's a way to reflect upon your own behavior. Um, that that is a really because I mean I'm trying to think like I can imagine I can I know some couples I know some people who are like so if, what would your significant other think if they saw your phone yeah. saw what you're up to yeah like I'd never let them see that like really well mm, okay yeah. but people just want to hide it right yeah it depends on I guess where you're at you know Victoria and I both have totally. each other's passwords and I don't have exactly. anything to hide from her but I could see a at, at another point in our relationship. Not that I had something to hide, but like not being there yet. There's a level of trust, right. you, you you know, that also comes Perfect. with that, you know. So it's a it's a measuring stick in that in that sense yeah. too. Like you yeah. know where you are, yeah. So it's I think it's just useful. It's not like condemning or, or what have you. It's just a useful thing to think about. It's like okay, it's a way of stepping outside your own box and and evaluating from the outside. Nick Weary was with us, by the that? way. Nick Weary was with right. us, and uh, and Andrew Nolan had said, uh, if you have kids, they will get into your phone and your browser history. <laughs> so watch out for that. We are actually right. we are, we are out of time, Scott. We've gone over an hour already. We didn't even need to any questions, did we? We had all no. we needed was just a match. That's all. Just start <laughs> That's... press press start on the ramble box, and I just. <laughs> That was good, man. That was it was good. It gave me a lot to think about. I'm sure it's going to give a lot of people stuff to think about, both from yeah, cool. the cardio aspect, the intra aspect, thinking about our 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 food timing, because that's another one that mm -hmm. comes up. You know, thinking about like you don't need to eat six meals a day. You could do it in three. I mean, maybe you can, right. but you know, you bring up some reasons why that could be beneficial to to spread your food out. And you know uh -huh. what? All, all those little the little knobs turning those little knobs too man that that's yeah. i think a good important reminder for all of us there's a lot of good stuff in this podcast yeah i just imagine someone misunderstanding and, and posting got my pre-workout set up and like there's anabar tabs and a little insulin syringe like here yeah, we go this is what scott stevenson suggested <laughs> no, no. this is what scott no. stevenson said he's a steroid advocate after all <laughs> You remember that? That's it, right? <laughs> no, that's, oh, that's true. True, right? I yeah. talked about it, you know? Yeah. Oh, it, everyone should be. Like, housewives, children, like, everybody. Mean, like, there's not a population. And it's a, for it should your be kids. a universal. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Put them in, should be eating, eating for cereal. Like, pour some milk on and um, Diana Bits. That's what yeah. she should be having for breakfast. Diana Bits Nation. 
There you go. Hashtag. <laughs> there you go. There you guys, go. for another episode of Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. Guys, you can learn so much more from Scott from his book. You can go to byobbcoach.com. Check his book out there. Or go to Amazon, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And uh, check out our sponsors. Like I said, True Nutrition has a whole new website. So head over there. Check it out. You can get your intra workout carbs there. In fact, you can take your carbs 10 minutes before your cardio is done a la Matt Porter. In fact, you can get MPA muscle intrusion, Matt Porter approved muscle intrusion from True Nutrition. Delicious tasting, highly branched cyclic dextrin and EAA blend. Use our code THINK. We're also brought to you by supplementshorse.ca for our Canadian folk. And uh, we're brought to you by Strom Sports Nutrition, of course, in the UK. And of course, we are brought to you by you, you guys at Patreon. I really appreciate everybody at Patreon because, uh, you know, I can't I can't depend on uh, YouTube uh, ab, ad revenue. They just don't come through for me. But Patreon does. Oh, yeah. You guys are awesome. Yeah. All right. Scott, I appreciate you as always, man. Likewise. Peace.